Hello and welcome to History of Electronic Music Part 6. Hello and welcome to the show. First of all, apologies for the lateness of it. I've just been extremely busy at work at the moment and I'm moving house as well and with Christmas and everything it's just been a bit mad. So apologies for that. Um, but on to this show and part six. Um, it's about the rise of the synthesizer in the late 50s through to the early 70s. And obviously I've mentioned synthesizers before already. I've mentioned, for instance, the RCA synthesizers for, used by Milton Babbitt at the um, Columbia Research Facility. And the Mark I and the Mark II, which were very sophisticated synthesizers, um, using punch cards to program them. But they were really just um, one-offs and they couldn't uh, possibly translate into any commercial uh, success. Um, I've also mentioned earlier in... Um, part five I think it was um, Raymond Scott and his company Manhattan Research Inc and his instruments the Clavivox and the Electronium and in the late 50s he was a, a real pioneer of synthesized technology and he was really the first person to exploit the commercial potential of synthesizers because he wrote things like this <laughs> Spark plug that cleans itself while you drive. Bow! And it's auto light, auto light, auto light. Oh boy, do these plugs clean themselves? Pow! The firing tip, as longer than usual, extends much deeper into your engine. So carbon and lead deposits that collect on just plugs are burned away by the flame. Bow! With our light, you save money. Groundbreaking electronic music from I'm not exactly sure when from either the late 50s or the early 60s uh, by Raymond Scott and it's from the album Manhattan, Manhattan Research Inc and that's a, a great early example of commercial electronic music and that's really what I'm going to be concentrating on this time because um, it's the growth in popularity of the technology 
very much matches with the growth and popularity of synthesizers themselves and the synthesis sound because it took a while for people to truly accept um, an electronic sound as something that could be musical. And I'm going to be looking at three synthesizer manufacturers who all um, developed their systems around about the same time, around about the early 60s. There was uh, Robert Moog, who developed the Moog modular, obviously. Donald Buckler, who developed the electronic music box, which is also known as the Buckler box. And Peter Zinoviev over in the UK, who founded EMS, which is Electronic Music Studios. Um, but first up... Probably the best-known musical instrument maker in the 20th century was Robert Moog. Um, a quick note on pronunciation, because obviously I'm saying it Moog when it's uh, spelt M-O-O-G, and most a lot of people would say it as Moog, but it's a Hungarian, apparently it's it's pronounced Moog, and as in spelt M-O-A-G, possibly, which sort of makes sense of the Moog Rogue, which was a, a later synthesizer of their, the company. Right, on to his history. Uh, Moog started building theremins in the early 50s and when he was still at high school and he started a small business making theremin coils with his father. In 1963, he went to the annual convention of the New York State School Music Association to sell theremins where he met composer Herb Deutsch who was looking for new sounds. Spurred on by Deutsch's interest, Moog combined the principle of voltage control of oscillators and amplifiers with the ideas of a, of a modular system first proposed by Harold Bode in a, an issue of Electronics magazine in 1961, and the first Moog modular was the result. It was of course a very crude prototype, but he made enough weird sounds to make Herb Deutsch happy. After building some proper working models and adding a voltage-controlled filter, Moog was invited to exhibit at the Audio Engineering Society's convention. And it was here that he got his first orders for modular systems, although at the time it was just a display piece and it wasn't really intended as a commercial product. But he got so many orders that he had to basically go back to his garage and stop building these things. At around about the same time as this, at the San Francisco Tape Music Centre, Donald Buckler was working along the same lines. His electronic music box, or Buckler box, was a voltage-controlled modular synthesizer with the addition of a 16-part analogue sequencer, which was designed to take some of the effort out of splicing tape. Throughout 1965, Buckler worked closely with Morton Subotnik, who experimented with the synthesizer and was eventually commissioned to record an album for Non-Such Records. This was Silver Apples of the Moon and was released in 1967. And here's a little example of the title track of that. This is Morton Sobotnik, Silver Apples of the Moon, part one. Thank <laughs> you. 
Botnik, Silver Apples of the Moon from 1967, and an early example of synthesized music um, created on the Buckler box. At about the same time as this, both Moog and Buckler creating synthesizers, over in the UK, Peter Zinoviev couldn't stand cutting up tape, so he built a sequencer. He then teamed up with David Cockrell, who had read a 1964 article by Bob Moog about voltage control circuits, and they built a, a crude modular synth. They had some contacts in the BBC, and they managed to get in touch with Delia Derbyshire and Brian Hodgson at the BBC Radio Sophonic Workshop. And in 1966, Peter, Delia and Brian formed Unit Delta Plus, which had the purpose of making electronic music and promoting its commercial use in film, TV and advertising. One way they did this was to hold what they billed as the first electronic music concert in the UK at the Watermill Theatre near Newbury. And one of the pieces they played was a piece of electronic pop music with the music by Delia Derbyshire and the singing and lyrics by Anthony Newley. Um, this is Muji's Blue Gees. I'm in a state, kid. 
I've got the moochies, the dreaded bluejis. It doesn't help when you when you watch them floating by and those little mini skirts, the little pink knees winking away, wild air lolloping about in the wind, and those mad earrings and the clown faces, and that gear, the hip hugged and plastic macked, they're goggled and helmeted, booted and spurred. Thank God I can control myself. A little dream in my heart place face. A little scene tucked away in my memory. A little girl and me went case face. Rain kept falling. She stopped calling. Do you think she's lonely and thinks about me? I've got the moochies, the dreaded bluejis. A little girl just walked by me. See. A little smile in her eye. Here we go again. A little rise in my blood rate, mate. It stopped raining. Who's complaining? Goodbye, moojis. Bye, bye, bluejis. Oh, excuse me, sweetheart. Uh, my friend and I are having an argument. He says you're a fashion model. I say you're a film star. <laughs> and as there's a few quid in it, I wondered. It... Oh, by the way, a great piece of. Proto Electro Pop there by Delia Derbyshire and Anthony Newley, performed in 1966. So, as you can see, the, the synthesizer was trying to become a popular instrument, but it was receiving little support due to the unnaturalness of its sound, and people were really, really against it and found it so strange that they just couldn't accept it. But all this changed in late 1968, as Robert Moog will explain. Before uh, the release of Switched On Bach, which was the end of 1968, uh, not much music had been made with, with electronic instruments. People heard lots of funny sounds. They heard the sounds in television and radio commercials. Perhaps they heard the sounds in uh, experimental music, uh, which uh, was very, very strange to most people. Uh, but what Switched On Bach did is, was prove that you could make real music that had widespread appeal with these instruments. And I think that, that was the first really big shift in people's perception of synthesizer and the whole electronic music medium. And here's a little section of that, uh, Switched On Bach, by Wendy Carlos. Apologies for the poor quality.
short example excerpt from Switched On Back, which was released in late 1968, um, composed by Wendy Carlos. That was part of two-part invention in B-flat major. So Switched On Back was really essential in making synthesized music a lot more popular and acceptable. And Switched On Back was a huge success, becoming the first classical album to sell over half a million copies and go platinum. After making this, Wendy Carlos switched her attention to Beethoven and started to work on a version of his Ninth Symphony. And as they're singing in this, she decided to use a vocoder to create the singing effects. Now this was the first time a vocoder had actually been used to create singing rather than just normal speech, and the initial reactions of the friends she played it to were unanimous. They absolutely hated it. So Carlos decided to ease them into this sound, by making a piece of her own called Time Steps. When not working on the music, Carlos was also reading A Clockwork Orange by Anthony Burgess. And when she found out that Stanley Kubrick planned to make a film of it, she got in contact with him and managed to land the job of scoring the film. Um, here's a little excerpt from the film and an original piece of music by Wendy Carlos. This is the start of Time Steps. Um, I'm sorry I can't play the whole thing because it's 13 minutes long, um, but it's a very good piece.
An extract from Time Steps by Wendy Carlos, which eventually um, formed the part of the soundtrack of A Clockwork Orange, which was released in 1971. But I also have to play you something else from A Clockwork Orange, and that's the main title music, which is taken from Henry Purcell's Music for the Funeral of Queen Mary, but it is a genuine electronic music classic. Here is the title music for A Clockwork Orange. Wendy Carlos and Rachel Elkins' reinterpretation of Henry Purcell's music for the funeral of Queen Mary as used as the theme tune for A Clockwork Orange by Stanley Kubrick in 1971. Well, that was a long sentence. Um, Continuing on the theme of classical music made electronic, I have to mention Iaso Tomita, a Japanese composer, who started making electronic versions of Debussy's works after buying a Moog 3 synthesizer in the late 60s, and he started to build his his, um, studio from there, and it it became quite large. Um, Tomita tends to take the sounds a lot further than Carlos used to, and create something really different to the original. This has led to his work not ageing quite so well, and appearing uh, possibly quite cheesy sometimes, because he's also done things like the Star Trek theme and the um, Close Encounters theme and things. Um, But he's still very good. This is from um, his 1974 album, Snowflakes Are Dancing, which is the work of Debussy. And this is Gollywog's Cakewalk. (laughs) 
Sotometers, reinterpretation of Debussy's Gollywood Cakewalk from 1974, and a very liberal interpretation, uh, considering that's a piece originally just for piano only, but some amazing sounds he created there. Um, in a similar vein, and at a similar time, Gershon Kingsley formed the first Moog Quartet, uh, which performed at the Carnegie Hall in January of 1970. And this track provides a good link between the electro-classical stuff and the rock music that was around at the time, which I'm going to be talking about in a couple of minutes. This is Gershon Kingsley's first Moog Quartet and an excellent tune called Have It or Grab It or Go.
should we care that you're hungry and bare? It's time you awoke. It's a terrible joke, but you've had it, you know, and you really must go. How good do them mokes sound?
a really excellent and quite obscure track from the Gershon Kingsley's first Moog Quartet from 1970 and absolutely fantastic. From 1970 I'd like to go back a few years to have a look at how pop music at the time was changing and particularly how it was influenced by the avant-garde underground and once again the name John Cage comes into this because John Cale was a violinist who had worked with John Cage and he went on to form the Velvet Underground with Lou Reed and their radical approach to sound on the Velvet Underground and Nico album which was released in 1967 was extremely influential at the time. I don't think I'd really call it electronic music but their sound was so radical as to inspire many others. And of course there was no bigger bands at the time than the Beatles, this was really their heyday and they borrowed from various aspects of the avant-garde electronic movement and I've got a few examples here it's worth taking a look at there was for instance the concrete music of revolution number no. nine from the white album Or there was this from the end of the Sgt. Pepper's album. A couple of concrete music tape experiments there by the Beatles. And then, of course, they used the Mellotron, which is a tape-based keyboard instrument, which um, used tape loops of sampled instruments, played at different speeds to create different pitches. And on this, they wrote these two things. And on top of this, where there was the actual synthesizer that they used, as mentioned in part three, they used a clavioline on Baby and Richman as as exampled here. Number 
And then finally a Moog on Maxwell's Silver Hammer and Because. So the Beatles were having a go at synths at this time, but they never got completely into it, and they never did a, synth, a completely synthesized track. But the Rolling Stones obviously liked it a bit more because they did this particular track, which is from their album Their Satanic Majesty's Request. It's from 1967, and this is 2,000 Light Years From Home. Rolling Stones, 2000 Light Years From Home, from the 1967 album, Their Satanic Majesty's Request. 
and I can't be completely sure, I've not been able to find out, but the synthesizer there sounds very like an EMS synthesizer, which is Electronic Music Studios, which were formed by Peter Zinoviev, uh, Tristram Carey, remember him from Part 5, and David Cockerell in 1969. Um, so it was after that track was made, so maybe they had advanced access to his studio before that, I don't know. By 1970, two important things had happened. Firstly, the synthesizer had become a portable performance-based instrument with the invention of the AMS VCS-3 and the Minimoog. Secondly, it had become acceptable or even desirable to have synthesizers in popular music um, because these things were being used by The Who, Pink Floyd, Brian Eno in Moxie Music and many, many more. But two names really stand out as early champions of the Moog in performance. Keith Emerson of Emerson, Lake and Palmer and Rick Wakeman of Yes, who could both be seen as virtuosos of the Moog. A couple of examples here. Firstly, by Emerson, Lake and Palmer and continuing with the classical sort of theme. Uh, this is from their version of Mazorsky's Picture, Pictures at an Exhibition from 1971. And this is the gnome. Emerson, Lake and Palmer from The Gnome, which is part of Mussorgsky's Pictures at an Exhibition from 1971. Um, and a slightly calmer example from the Yes album 
Close to the Edge from 1972. This is Rick Wakeman playing the Moog. Wakeman on the synthesizer from 1972. There could well have been things other than the Moog used there because um, that, there's some things in the background. It sounds also like a little bit of an EMS synthesizer there. Um, but also perhaps a bit of proto-ambient, uh, that selection. So by this point, the analog synth had established itself as a popular instrument and new manufacturers started cropping up all over the place. Um, there was ARP, whose Odyssey in 2600 came out in the early 70s. It was an ARP, by the way, that was used in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. There was also Oberheim, Korg and Yamaha, who also released analog synths in the 70s. But it was one of the earliest manufacturers, Donald Buckler, who really saw the future of electronic music production and began developing ways of controlling analog synthesizers with computers. Buckler released the Series 500 hybrid system in 1971, which was the first digitally controlled analog synth. Bell Laboratories, the computer music pioneers, were also into that idea, and their Groove system was a way of computer monitoring the real-time controls of analog synthesizers. Groove, by the way, stands for Generated Real-Time Operations on Voltage-Controlled Equipment. One person that works extensively there, from 1973 to 1978, was Laurie Spiegel, and she composed this, and it's the last piece I'm going to play tonight. This is from 1974, and it's called Appalachian Grove Number no. 1. Thank you. 
Appalachian Grove number one by Laurie Spiegel from 1974 written on the Groove computer analog interface at Bell Labs. So by the mid 70s the future of the technology was set it was going to go digital but now the focus of these podcasts is going to change slightly because of the rise in popularity of electronic music during the 70s and 80s and the availability of the technology there was a great explosion of it. So I'm going to be concentrating on particular artists and genres from now on. And next time I'm going to be talking about Krautrock and two particular bands, Can, a little bit, but mainly about Tangerine Dream. Hopefully it'll be out about the beginning of February. Um, I was thinking because this one was quite late, if you'd like to be informed in future if it's going to be late or whatever, if you'd like to join an email group, just... Um, email me at shekel at hotmail.com, S-H-E-K-L at hotmail.com and let me know if you want to be on the email group and I can send out um, emails if there's a delay for whatever reason. Um, That's all. Thank you very much for the person that sent me some money. It's always much appreciated. See you next time and good night.